This podcast was produced by members of the Pinsker Centre Policy Fellowship. The Pinsker Centre is a think tank which focuses on global foreign policy whilst promoting freedom of speech and fighting intolerance. If you'd be interested in learning more about our work, follow the Pinsker Centre on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Applications for the Policy Fellowship Programme will open in the spring. Hello and welcome to a discussion on the Saudi Arabia and Iranian regional rivalry and its implications for Israeli security. So I think to start with just a quick introduction, my name is Alex and I'll be here with Elliot and Ochel. And I think the best point to start here is to give a bit of context to the regional rivalry itself, with Saudi Arabia being a Sunni-based state and Iran being a Shia-based state, then being the two sort of branches of Islam in the region. These two countries, I guess, are sort of regional superpowers or predominant powers in the region. An interesting point to discuss, first of all, and I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts on this, is what are your thoughts on what the actual basis of this rivalry is? Do you think it's a historical rivalry that was inevitably going to happen? Or do you think it's something that's much more modern and perhaps a, a response to power vacancies in the region? I think it's something more modern. To a certain extent, uh, the Saudi relationship with the United States has contributed to a deterioration of Saudi-Iranian relations. And, and as a result, of course, Iran has been pursuing modernization of its armed forces and the development of ballistic missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads and, of course, nuclear warhead technology. So I think it's placed much in this tense rivalry, the Saudi, one could say, alliance with the United States. But in light of the perceived retreat from the Middle East after the debacle of the Afghanistan war, I think Saudi Arabia maybe is rethinking what it wants to do, given that it doesn't feel confident that the United States would be a very active player in the Middle East compared to, for example, Russia, which is very active in Syria. We have reports of China selling military equipment to states and gulfs. So I think it's 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 that to do probably mainly with its relationship and its perceived relationship with the United States. I think that's a very interesting point. And I think it's quite interesting to look at the nature of the rivalry between these two states because I think with Iran, you have its identity in its clerical republic with Khomeini initially and his expansive regime and looking to spread his ideas. And I think almost the dynamic between the two states is you have Iran looking to almost cause revolution within the region and Saudi Arabia having a preference for stability. And that's almost where this rivalry has come. It's between trying to balance order versus the creation of a sheer sphere of influence within the region. And I think you saw that with the power vacancy in Iraq and how that led to Shia governments. You see it with the Iranian sponsorship of groups like Hezbollah. And I think most recently it's come into prominence with the uh, Yemen conflict. It's not received a massive amount of news, but it did when there was the Houthi Shia group, which bombs about eight miles away from Formula One event, which got a lot of global coverage. And there was a lot of light shed on that conflict. I think the other thing that's interesting to touch on in this is 
what are your thoughts about the sort of identity battle within this regional rivalry? Because we've spoken a lot about the material interests with Saudi Arabia's balancing policy against Iran. But there's also obviously this element of you have two competing models of Islamic governance. You have the sort of monarchical Saudi state versus the clerical republic of Iran. Do you think that's a significant factor or do you think that's almost something that's being used as a veil of legitimization? I think it's a veil of legitimization. One has to remember that Saudi Arabia, for most of its history, has been the focus state of the Middle East, given its uh, oil-producing quantities. But now you have Iran, who has taken a more active role within the region and has become, certainly, uh, militarily speaking, more powerful. So I think it's mainly that. But I think Iran wants to become uh, uh, the leading power in the Middle East. And you see it intervening in Syria. There are reports of Iranian terrorist supporting groups in Iraq. I think it's mainly that Iran wants to take that role, I think, as the leading Islamic state within the Middle East. And uh, compared with Saudi Arabia, who has had for the past few years a, a lot of bad press domestically for its domestic actions and its intervention in Yemen. So I think Iran is, is it's benefiting and wants to take that role away from Saudi Arabia. And Iran produces a, a large quantity of oil. So it's a very important, growing important state in the East. I think another interesting element to this, and especially when we look at Israeli security, is the role of nuclear weapons in this rivalry. Because obviously we see Iran pursuing nuclear weapons, but Saudi Arabia have never really taken that route because there's always been that sort of trust in specifically the USA, but I guess generally in the Western security community. So with perhaps Saudi Arabia's growing reluctance to trust the West, do we think there's potential for a almost nuclear spiral of weapons in the region and it's uh, the race for the nuclear bomb in the Middle East. I certainly have no doubt that it will come to that because Iran getting uh, nuclear weapons would mean not only a sort of security balancing against Israel and the United States, but mean also that Iran will have a certain kind of influence uh, given that it has nuclear weapons. So you can compare that with Pakistan and India. Of course, India has superior conventional capabilities, but given that Pakistan has nuclear weapons, it has to sort of balance out the security concerns in that region. So I think there is a possibility that if Saudi Arabia feels threatened, that it would seek to have nuclear weapons. And it would mean a dangerous nuclear competition within the Middle East. And also, you have to take into account how Israel is going to act. If Israel sees its core strategic interests, mainly its own survival, that threaten because Iran has nuclear weapons, there's no doubt Israel would act militarily, and it probably would be justified in doing that. Uh, so I think there is a, a strong and I think saddening prospect, future prospect, of a possible nuclear uh, competition in the Middle East. I'll just chime in very, very quickly. I think as a bit of context that perhaps could give further impetus to Ohel's argument, which I think is quite useful, and the fact that Joe Biden has been 
I'd say, categorizing countries as sort of Republican states and Democrat states. And so obviously you had Obama being very, having the Iran deal and Trump stopped the Iran deal and put sanctions on Iran, which crippled their economy to a large degree. Given the fact that this sort of blatant and overt fixation upon Iran and the New Deal, and the fact that they're trying to sort of cut ties and indicative of that fact is Saudi Arabia saying, no, we're not going to, or OPEC rather saying, no, we're not going to double oil production, I think it's an interesting backdrop to O'Hare's point that given Saudi Arabia hasn't had the green light in terms of support and relationship from the West, they'll perhaps go their own way. I think that's a very interesting point. It leads nicely on to sort of implications for Israel. And I think the natural starting point here is the somewhat recent, but still relatively recent, Abraham Accords, which is obviously with Israel and certain Gulf states and the normalisation of relations. And I think initially, off the bat, I'd say it's a productive thing for Israel to have better relations with the Gulf states. Any measure to increase the quality of relations with neighbours is obviously beneficial for the security of a state. But how do we think it's going to affect the general power dynamics in the Middle East? I personally don't think it will really affect anything. A treaty and a convention and the general agreement doesn't change the practical implications of what happens on the ground. Fundamentally, Israel has always been in a defensive position from its very founding. Even post-World War II, in the 1960s, you had Operation Damocles when they went into Egypt because they took Nazi scientists and tried to make more rockets to fire into Israel. Fundamentally, every operation undertaken at Israel have, has been a defensive one. And to me, this comes down to an issue of trust. Had there not been the Yom Kippur War and the other wars that surrounded that conflict that made Israel into a defensive state, perhaps there could be better leverage given to this sort of treaty and this convention and so forth that would give a better dialogue to happen. But the same states which operate within the Abraham Accords are, for example, Saudi Arabia, are the same ones who funded the Yom Kippur War and all the shining states to go attack Israel. So perhaps it is a good revelation to see it, but the underlying feature of trust between states have to be addressed. I think Israel is a very in a very tough position here because there is a great power game playing out in the Middle East. So you have in Syria, you have Russia uh, being uh, uh, intervening in Syria, and in Syria, Russia has its only overseas base. You have China trying to get influence in the Gulf states, and then you have the United States. So I think Israel it's it's, it's playing a very uh, tight balancing game here because you have three great powers competing in that same region on the issue of the gulf states and uh, of trying to better your relations that's of course is very positive for israel but again uh, iran is the primary threat here for israel so it uh, in the case of israel it needs russia to allow israeli fighters and israeli bombers to attack iranian-backed militants in syria it will probably need to deal with China at some point as become very as it becomes a power interested in the Middle East. And also you have to deal with what the United States is going to do. So there is, of course, domestic concerns that the United States shouldn't be meddling in the Middle East. That will play a role. So you have those three factors that are definitely 
shaping what is the security posture that Israel is going to take in the short and long term. I think it's very relevant that you mention the United States of America in that point, Ohel, because while on a regional level, there may be progress that Israel can make with Gulf states, such as Saudi Arabia, for Israel to try and posture against states like Russia and China is inherently more difficult because of the differences in resources and material capabilities. I think it's quite interesting when looking at the threat that Iran poses to Israel, it's actually looking at what is the nature of that threat. Because you could say, on the one hand, there's the threat that Iran would pose if they were to get the nuclear bomb, and what would that look like for Israeli security? But there's also the question of Iranian-sponsored groups and Iranian-sponsored activity, and the one that immediately springs to mind is Hezbollah. So I guess my question is, what do you think is perhaps the more pressing concern of these two options? And how do you see this playing out in the future? The short term, probably the militants, because they are right next to your border. So you have to deal with that first. On the long term, of course, uh, is the Iran. But the difficult Israel is facing is that there isn't a coherent American strategy in regards to Iran. So you have the Biden administration trying to renegotiate the Iran deal, which also ironically involves Russia, given all the rhetorical, you know, flavor of the Ukrainian and Russian conflict. But also you have the possibility that if the Democratic administration is defeated in 2024, you will have a Republican administration that would not uh, agree to such a deal. So you have, in a sense, a not very coherent strategy to dealing with Iran from the United States. So that means that Israel cannot be certain fully is how is the United States going to act. So that, I think, is the main question for Israel as it prepares to deal with the possibility of Iran uh, getting nuclear weapons. So the lack of that current strategy, I think, is it's very troubling for Israeli policymakers. I think that's a very valid point about the uncertainty around America's role in the region. And I believe that the logical extension from that point is that if Israel cannot be guaranteed of its relationship with America visa Iran, then the question is, Israel must look at how can it guarantee or maintain or preserve its security on its own. And if we look at the hypothetical of Iran having nuclear weapons, one could look at the arguments of mutually assured destruction and say, your safety is guaranteed insofar as both states have nuclear weapons, neither would use them against each other, especially in such close proximity as the Middle East. But the question that comes about from Iran is that there is this commitment to the destruction of Israel inherent in the Iranian regime. I don't want to say the Iranian state or body politic, but I want to say within the regime specifically. I want to be clear on that. But I think, is the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, is it appropriate to the power dynamics in the Middle East anymore? I would have to say it's not, because Israel have, I'd say, adopted a more westernised version, which is obviously mutually assured destruction, which means that no one's going to end up using nuclear weapons, so therefore your security is guaranteed. But 
that's obviously more Western doctrine, whereas, and it's less ideological and, and more pragmatic, I would say, whereas the Iranian, as you said, the regime, their point of view is more, I would say, ideological, which means they are committed to the destruction of the state of Israel, fundamentally, which means that you can't apply that, well, we can't apply MAD if it means that it's not going to guarantee security for both states, and we guarantee security for one, because obviously you're going to use them first, and therefore the capacity to launch yours back is a bit, is, is difficult. So therefore, to me, with that in mind, it doesn't work anymore, and we have to be extremely wary of Iran getting nuclear weapons. It depends, of course. The MAG doctrine isn't already in play uh, in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict because nobody believes that if Russia doesn't have nuclear weapons, would NATO will, of course, have intervened directly in the Ukrainian conflict. So I think MAG doctrine still is applicable here. The question is, is whether or not the allies Iran has would at least rein in that possibility. I don't think the Iranian regime would like to undertake a policy that would probably isolate it, even from its own allies, because I don't think China and Russia would want a nuclear conflict in the Middle East. But to a certain extent, what should be of concern is if Israel takes military action to prevent this, then would this be uh, exclusively Iranian-Israeli conflict, or would it drag other powers into that conflict? I think that is even more dangerous than the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because it, it will drag multiple players into this hypothetical conflict that is already happening indirectly, you know, in Syria between Iranian-backed militants and Israel. But I, I think the mad doctrine still applies, but you never know, you know, when ideology is so central to your view of governing and how you uh, use the statecraft of the regime. But I think nobody, especially Iran, wants a certain kind of nuclear conflict in the least. I think the question you pose about what would Israeli potential invasion of Iran look like? I think it's worth also thinking about would would Israel ever actually invade Iran for the purposes of preventing nuclear weapons? Because even though, like Elliot said, Israel's been in a position as a defensive state throughout its existence, you ask yourself, what does a defensive war look like? Because initially one would say defense is self-defense. You're being attacked, you respond so that you aren't hurt and you can survive. But then you could ask yourself, well, it's a preemptive war, a war of self-defense. And that is when I think you get down the slippery slope of when can it be justified to perhaps invade Iran to stop nuclear weapons. And I think that it would be incredibly damaging for Israel's security within the region and perhaps even beyond if it was to invade Iran without the support of the United States of America. And I would say other Western powers, but I can't see any other NATO or Western powers inclined to give that support in the way that the United States would. I wouldn't count out Israeli military action. That's what they did in the Six-Day War in the 60s. But if in the sense of an invasion, there's, I, I think it's very difficult that Israel is going to invade Iran. There's no geographic proximity and, and, and Israel doesn't have 
the amphibious capabilities to do that. On the other hand, its air force is very capable. So we could see in a hypothetical future, a possible airstrike that would knock out these Iranian nuclear facilities. So we can't dismiss that possibility because uh, Israel has already done preemptive strikes and that six-day war is a, is a very glaring example of that. The question is, of course, is, is what will be the repercussions of such a, an operation? Would it be an, a full Iranian declaration of war against uh, Israel or would it be uh, a, a, something like the U.S. Iranian missile exchange after the U.S. murdered uh, an important figure in the Iranian government. So it's it's a very difficult question, but I wouldn't rule out that Israel would, if it sees its survival as uh, threatened from Iranian nuclear weapons, that it would definitely use its long-range capabilities and strike Iranian nuclear facilities. I'll just quickly add, I think we are excluding the very, I think, probably more prominent idea of the use of, of the Mossad um, in this. I, I, I think I referenced it very, very briefly was Operation Damocles, was when Egypt got uh, Nazi rocket scientists to continue their rocket program against Israel. And then they obviously they sent uh, letter bombs and uh, different kinds of explosives after and, and killed off all the scientists. What I could see happening is a similar operation being enacted in, in Iran to kill off their scientists to sort of halt their progression towards getting nuclear weapons or maybe even some sort of operation to damage infrastructure and so forth. But a full-blown invasion with boots on the ground, like Alex, I think you're spot on. I never think it will happen unless there's a big backing from the West, which again, I don't think there will be. I think I was going to make a similar point to you, but along different lines, Elliot, is that there's one element to this conflict, which is unknown by almost all parties, which is the growing advent of cyber warfare and how that can affect conflict. I think we've seen perhaps links or perhaps ideas of cyber conflict growing already. I think it was the Stuxnet uh, program. I may be incorrect on that, where it was a cyber attack on Iranian nuclear capabilities and it was potentially linked back to Israel. But again, it's unsubstantiated. That may perhaps be the value in cyber warfare and cyber attacks on Iranian infrastructure is that it can't be directly linked back to Israel. So with perhaps the idea of an invasion by Mossad or an operation by Mossad, not an invasion, you risk the possibility of an escalation of violence from that. But if there is no direct link back through a cyber warfare attack, then is that perhaps it may not be able to cause the same amount of damage and restrict the program the same way, but there may be more security in what it prevents, so to speak. So I'd be interested to know your guys' thoughts on how cyber warfare could potentially influence the conflict. And also, does the use of cyber warfare set a dangerous precedent insofar as you have unidentified attacks sort of raiding the... If you don't know who the aggressor is, how do you respond? And that sort of idea, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think on that. I'll just make a very, very quick point because I, I haven't been as well versed as you have over this, Alex, but I can recall back when the rockets were raining over Israel and I think anonymous hacker groups, anonymous including 
targeted the Iron Dome, what coding all the sort of the automatic uh, rocket targeting defense system. And it indicates to me that cyber warfare is perhaps useful, but we should be equally wary of the repercussions of using it as defensive capabilities like the Iron Dome can equally be targeted. And just to add to that, there's probably already a proxy cyber war between Iran and Israel. So it's, it's an interesting field that uh, I'm not fully aware of what are Israeli cybersecurity capabilities, but most major powers in the region are investing in those types of capabilities. So I wouldn't be surprised that uh, Israel, through proxies, is already trying to combat in cyberspace uh, Iran. I think you raise a very good point on how both on cybersecurity, but also expanding it outwards insofar as there are probably a lot of operations from all sides going on, which are covert in nature, which unfortunately three people in the Western world away from the conflict and not involved in any of the administrations will have absolutely no knowledge about until perhaps 50 years in the future when it's all declassified or if it's declassified. So I think we just have this discussion about what can Israel do to guarantee its security? We can have discussions about Mossad, cyber attacks, etc. How do you balance against Iranian nuclear capabilities? But especially with how interconnected states are now, a lot of ways that security is being guaranteed are ways that we'll probably never know about. So I think, unless anyone else else has anything they'd like to bring up this is quite an interesting way to sort of wrap up our discussion so like we always do i think if we just each give a take-home message for what we'd like our listeners to think about going forward i think for me it would be that while there is obviously the pressing issue of iranian sponsored activity on israel's border it, the idf has the material capabilities to deal with that i do believe the more growing threats or more pressing threat in the future will be the Iranian attempts to acquire nuclear capabilities and how Israel responds to that and manages that threat will be vital in the future. I think my takeaway would be we have to readdress the underlying issues of trust in the region. I think the, the wars of the 60s and the 70s really struck a chord and it, and it still is prominent in Israeli and Middle Eastern politics to make Israel a defensively acting state. And until we address that issue of trust and that sort of imbalance that people haven't addressed properly, we can't truly move forward. I would end on, on this note that Israel needs to continue its balancing act between the, the, these three great powers that are intervening in the Middle East, China, Russia and the United States. And secondly, Israel should ask and should uh, forcefully ask for some uh, strategic clarity from the United States over the long term. And that will be very helpful for their security strategy over the years to come. So thank you very much for listening and we hope you tune in next time.